Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Are You Fucking Shitting Me? I'm April. And I'm Rachel. Rachel, what's shitting you this week? You know, just keeping up with the news, doing that kind of stuff, <laughs> working on some pretty exciting projects that maybe we'll we'll tell you guys about later. Yeah, we have been talking about some cool stuff. That's what's going on in my world. You? I guess the same, trying not to watch too much news because that just gets too depressing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, nah. <laughs> well, we've got a treat this week, something to lighten us up. It's not new at all. It's super, super old. We have a whole series, True or False, on weird shit ancient Romans did. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. I just have to mention, though, that the episode may not be appropriate for all listeners because our guest kind of does go into some sexual stuff um, a little bit. It's not, I mean, it's not that in depth, but I just thought, like, this may not be an episode for kids. Just a heads up, maybe preview it. So you remember Kiara from our Wonder Woman episode? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What happened with this episode is I was reading online, as I do, just skimming through some stuff. I found some site that just had random facts of ancient Rome and they were weird. They were really, (laughs) really weird. So I reached out to Kiara thinking, ah, maybe she knows someone in the world of academia who's got this kind of nailed down. And lo and behold, she did. And she introduced us to our guest this week, who was fantastic. He's awesome and hilarious. He is awesome and hilarious. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to bring him back maybe for little updates on what's new in ancient Rome. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, so without further ado, let's have him introduce himself here. I'm Dr. E. Del Kroll. People call me Del. I teach at Marshall University. I'm the program director for Classics here. Uh, my main interest is in um, sex and gender in the ancient world. And I work a lot on Ovid's Art of Love, which is an ancient handbook on uh, how to find a mate and what to do when you're dumb. It's, it's really fun stuff. What is this book that he's talking about? Ovid's Art of Love? What is it? A Guide to Mating? I didn't quite catch that. It's a guide to dating. Okay. <laughs> and it's a three-part series. And again, we'll put the link on the website. Uh, it's really pretty intense. There's some really bad advice and also some pretty good (laughs) advice. There's things like how to meet a chick, maybe go to the theater or the circus or the races, or Hey, you know, it could be at a friend's dinner party. So that's how you might meet a lady. So how to date in ancient Rome, how to date in ancient Rome. Okay. Okay. And then, um, you know, some really questionable advice. He's got a whole line for men to go heavy on the pursuit. So if there were restraining orders in ancient Rome, club in a bag or something, no, no, just like, (laughs) Like, hey, no doesn't always mean no. Just keep hitting her up. Okay. (laughs) Just keep at it. She'll wear down. Because, you know, a lady can't turn down flattery. Also, he talks about how the converse in women is less attractive. He gives the example of Minos' wife, who fell in love with a cow and really went after that cow and ended up with the Minotaur and gave birth (laughs) to the Minotaur. But the good advice really comes in later with, like, what to do when you're dumped. There's some, some good stuff that you might just read in Cosmo right now on how to keep yourself active. Interesting. And Ovid wrote all of this back in ancient Roman times? Yep. When he was alive. <laughs> <laughs> Love hasn't changed no. through the centuries. It's still a mystery to many of us. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Cool. Let's just jump right into the interview. First question. Is it true that Nero married a man and took on, quote, the role of the woman? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> 
<laughs> and the, the funny thing about that is there are much more extreme stories about Nero, and there are also much more extreme stories about emperors marrying dudes that we could also go into. But yeah, that story is, is recorded in Suetonius. And like any of these sort of extreme stories about individuals, I have to give a sort of an asterisk there because it's hard to tell what is historical fact and what is sort of scurrilous rumor attached to someone's name. I mean, if I were to draw an example from, you know, thin air here of, let's say hypothetically there was a story about, oh, I don't know, a, uh, a president of some United maybe states or something, and that perhaps this person was supposed to enjoy being, uh, say, urinated upon by a Slavic prostitute. Um, hmm. That's something that that may be true, or maybe something that you want to be true because of an ideological difference with this person, or you, something that you want to be true because we have a narrative in our culture about people who are phenomenally wealthy, uh, not being able to enjoy regular pleasures like sex, but having to engage in perversion to get any sort of of pleasure at all, right? So uh, the story may or may not be true, but there are plenty of reasons why someone would, would want it to be true. And it's something that will go down in the record for in this sort of hypothetical situation. So, so yeah, so we talk about Nero marrying uh, Doriferous. Yeah, that, that's recorded in the history, and it very well might have been true. And as the story goes, after the, the wedding ceremony, he uh, you know, adjourned to a room nearby and made noises as if he were a virgin being deflowered, you know, sort of both moaning and screaming. Nero likes putting on shows, so I... It's actually the most charming thing I had read about Nero. <laughs> That's why <what I> was... <laughs> It's possible that he did, but it's not, say, like there was a hypothetical media channel, say, a CNN who could release, you know, transcripts of, uh, of witnesses who heard the deflowering of uh, noises that he made. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, or if it happened in a <laughs> hotel room and they happened to have, uh, you know, a, a slave who could very quickly jot down, uh, you know, many frames of this in rapid succession and then mm. produce those. Uh. <laughs> Fair enough. And Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Is metaphorical? What's going on with that? So we know that there was a fire that happened while he was emperor, um, and it was a really massive catastrophe in Rome. Now, he blamed Christians for it. Uh, it's sort of the start of persecution of this sort of new strange cult that was around. So we don't know if, as one set of stories says, he uh, decided to set the fire so we'd have something truly dramatic to write music about or um, if it was something, you know, if it just happened and he seeing himself as much of an artist as anything else. So that sense, you know, playing fiddle or here playing the lyre while Rome burned is something that would be plausibly attached to him. Uh, but again, I don't think we can really say. I mean, we know that he really valued his art. He entered musical contests all over the Greek East, and a surprise, surprise, he won. He would do these performances where they would lock the doors and you couldn't get out, and we have stories attached where people uh, would hurl themselves from the back of the arena to their death because they couldn't get out or when they would give birth. <laughs> okay, so um, let's talk then about Caligula and his horse senator. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so the verb that's used in Suetonius is, is trotator, you know, it is handed down, which is one of the weakest terms we have for historical record. So basically it, it was rumored, uh, and he didn't do it, he intended to, but uh, he never quite got around to it. So Incatatus, you know, Swifty, he actually was treated very well by the Emperor Gaius. He had a, 
a marble uh, stable and an ivory stall. We even had a big elaborate dining room with slaves and the Emperor Gaius would invite people over to Ikatatsis for dinner and the horse would hold dinner parties. And uh, also on race day, allegedly Gaius would uh, put troops throughout the, the quarter between the stall and the races to make sure everybody was utterly silent so he didn't get spooked at all. Yeah, he uh, he did love him, his wee horsey. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was using Gaius because he actually would have really hated being called Caligula. I don't know if you know the story of how he got that name. No. Oh, yes. Yeah, so as the story goes, little Gaius was out on campaign when he was a, a child with his father, um, Germanicus. And as he was out on campaign, they made him a little soldier's uniform, perhaps. And the, uh, the name for the soldier boots, the sort of high sandals, uh, were Caligai. And so the dominion of form of that is Caliguli. And so he was basically being called Itty Bitty Boops. And so <laughs> you can see why if you're you know the most important person, you wouldn't want to be called Itty Bitty Boots to your face. So that's why he went by the Emperor Gaia, uh, although that name is, is indeed attached to him. Wow. So what we're saying then about Emperor Gaius Caligula making his horse a senator, then that one's mostly false on the Snope scale. Yeah, um, intended to never quite got around to it. And, you know, for all we know, it could be one of those things that he was just saying, because there's a set of scholars who believe that it's possible that Caligula wasn't batshit crazy, but was just doing things to show how much more power he had than everybody else and how the elixir of the norms of society don't apply to him. So in the, the same way that Nero, you know, married a guy or raped a vestal virgin or castrated one of his favorites and turned him into a, a woman, transfigurare, transfigure is the verb that's used, and then treated him as an empress. That it's just a way for them to show that they're they have that much more power, right? So maybe Caligula wasn't really nuts when he decided to make a brothel out of all the senators' wives to raise extra cash, but showing that he had just that much more power than everybody else might have been a, like a way of joining the, the biggest swinging dick on the block. Rachel, could you just hang on a second? What did he say right there? Did he just say that Caligula opened a brothel with senators' wives? He did. Now, keep in mind, a lot of these accounts are, we don't have first sources, like direct sources. But I did find a really cool blog called The Mad Monarchist. And it goes <laughs> through all of the bonkers shit that Caligula did. Again, sources aren't listed in it, but a lot of the stuff can be corroborated elsewhere on the internet. Um, but this is basically what happened when Caligula became emperor. He had this peaceful empire. It was full of money and he was bonkers and he lost the peace, lost the money. And he really delighted in ridiculing the senators. And when they were running out of money, he basically turned his palace into an imperial brothel and forced the wives of the Roman senators to employ themselves there. This would be a good one to bring Dell back on for. Maybe that's what that orgy scene in the movie was about. Yeah, no, you were telling me about there was a Caligula movie. Oh, yeah, it was uh, in the 70s. I've only seen bits and pieces of it. All I remember about it was that it was supposed to be X-rated, I believe, and totally shocking and new, and I think kind of terrible. I think Malcolm McDowell was Caligula. I also think what's so hilarious, just because of this movie, I always assumed that the name Caligula had something to do with sex or <laughs> a sexy guy or a well-endowed guy or something. So it's hilarious to me that Caligula actually means itty-bitty boots. 
Yeah, if they were going to make a porn-style movie, they could have called it Itty Titty Boots. I, I would think it would be Hugey Bougie Boots. <laughs> <laughs> it's a stretch. All right, let's get back to the interview now. Let's talk about the Vestal Virgins. Will you just describe who they were for us? The Vestal Virgins is one of the oldest and most traditional religious groups in, in Rome, and going all the way back to the founding of Rome. The Temple of Vesta, hence the name Vestal, was dedicated to the goddess of the heart. It's kind of an interesting, positive, not really career, but uh, it was one of the ways for noble women to have some control over their, of their lives in a way. They're in control of their finances for these 30 years. And at the end of their time, they could be married off. And since they're, you know, since they're a virgin, that's seen as a big plus. So they were almost unique in the way that they could control their own finances. They were also seen as having this important role where they had, say, strong boxes, where if you wanted to deposit your, your will, you could deposit with them and they know they'd keep it safe. So it's a neat parallel, not exactly independent, but mostly independent women's cult uh, that was highly valued at Rome. Okay, true or false, a Vestal Virgin was required to keep her hymen intact until she was 30 or else she would be buried alive. Mostly true. Um, some details that we can just see that pretty quickly off the bat. It's a 30-year term, right? And girls were picked between 6 and 10. So they, you know, till 36 or 40. I don't believe that the hymen actually is relevant here. I mean, they were supposed to be chaste. And there's this whole metaphorical connection between the integrity of the women and the integrity of the state and keeping the heart fire in the Temple of Vesta going, much like you would have the heart fire in your house going. So there's this real metonymic connection that's going on there. And the hymen is is not important because I think about back in the 480s, things were not going well for the Romans. This is in Livy's second book of his, of his history. Uh, and so they, you know, asked the soothsayers what was going on. They said that the, uh, the vestals were not um, uh, pursuing their duties, you know, with the appropriate vigor. So Afia was a vestal virgin who was convicted of, of unchastity. They don't mention her, her hymen. They don't mention any testing of her. They just say the soothsayers are saying the vestals are not doing their stuff. It was not something where these women were, you know, sort of put up on the rack and tested. If they were found unchaste, then yeah, they were, they were buried alive. And the buried alive thing is kind of important, I think, because you don't want to kill a vestal in a way that they're trying to to find a loophole with the god because you're not allowed to bury somebody within the sacred boundaries of Rome. I mean, that's that's a big law. That's one of the reasons why if you, if you go to Rome to the thing, you like uh, decide to go down to the, uh, the Via Appia, you'll just see tomb after tomb after tomb lining the road there, you know, up to the traditional walls uh, because you're not to bury somebody in the city. So when you bury the Vestal alive, you, you basically give her a room with some food, some water, a lamp, a bed, and no way out. So... You're not killing her. She may wind up dying, but you're not violating the taboo of burying somebody in the world of Rome, and you're also not killing a, a Vestal. You're sort of leaving it up to them, the same way that, you know, if you want to get rid of uh, an infant, you just leave them out, and they can fend for themselves, and it's not really killing your kin. Okay, so the buried alive Vestal virgins were basically Schrodinger's cat. If you seal one up alive, it's up to the gods if she dies or not. And since you're not going to open the door, you'll never know. So it's possible she's alive. But if you open the door, then you killed her, which is what you're not supposed to do. So there's just no way to know. Just no way to know. Let's stick with corporal punishment. Is it true that the punishment for patricide was to be tied up in a sack with a snake, a dog and a cock? Yes. 
there are some variations on that. I, I'm surprised you didn't include a monkey, which is oftentimes well, part of the punishment. Had I known, I would have included a monkey. How were these animals chosen, and what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, all right. So, first, let's talk about the sack. Because you throw them into a sack, you throw them into into moving water, and that shuts them off from the outside world and moves them away. Cicero in his pro Roscio has this really great justification for the sack because he said you don't want animals to devour somebody this horrible and then they become wild and savage in, in turn. So yeah, so the sack's a good thing. Throwing somebody into running water is a good thing because that cleanses your group and sends them away. Um, now as for why a cock, a dog, a snake, and a monkey, I haven't heard any really good explanations for it. Some guesses are things like, uh, well, a monkey or an ape is sort of a mock of a human. You're not a human the same way that this monkey is not a human. The uh, the snake is always associated with the earth. There was a thread that thought that snakes just grew naturally out of the earth. So we, we know that the punishment with the four animals is recorded in the sayings of a famous jurist from the third century. And then we know that it was sort of like recodified in law by like 530. And it was extended not just to parasites, but also to matricides and people who kill their kids. Is it true or false that the ancient Romans had a festival in which slaves and their masters would switch places? Uh, yes, that is true. The Saturnalia was probably the most popular holiday in in Rome. And uh, it started off initially as a, as a seven-day-long holiday. Augustus cut it down to three, and then it got moved back to, to five by later emperors who were trying to to curry favor, but people generally still celebrated over seven days. It sounded like it was a fun time, but also had these sort of a lot of weird inversions that uh, we don't entirely understand. Like, we do understand the upstairs-downstairs thing, right? The Boxing Day thing, where um, slaves got to eat first, and masters would wear these little felt caps that were associated with, with slaves, um, and they got to wear sort of casual clothing, not their normal formal dress. Uh, and all that stuff is, is kind of understandable, and giving gifts is something that's understandable, but there are other things like the statue of Saturnus was normally bound up uh, for the rest of the year. But during the Saturnalia, the chains came off. Why? We don't know. It's, uh, or at least I haven't read any um, explanations that I found particularly plausible. But yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's a, it was a really fun time. This type of, of free time to, to blow off steam might have been a way to help maintain the, the structures, you know, that we have license for a small time, but we know that's just a, just a fun time, kind of like the way that you might have, say, casual Friday at work or, uh, or the purge, right? Wasn't the purge supposed to make everything right, you know, when you just have those couple days to blow off steam? So I think that that's, that's one explanation that I find uh, kind of plausible, that it's sort of safe uh, rebellion in this small amount of time. But I think one of the things to keep in mind is that we never have any type of envisioning of a non-slave society. I mean, slavery is, is bad, and I don't want to make light of um, the Roman system by talking about the way that it was um, for a small subsection of slaves better than what we know from our American South. Because for most slaves, it, life was, was terrible. If you're um, in the mills or in a mine, uh, your life is going to be uh, short and awful, and there was no hope of escape, right? And if you're on a farm, it's not much better. But if you were perhaps someone who was around uh, the master or perhaps became a, a skilled um, craftsman, um, you could become freed. And when you were freed, you were able to be a citizen. 
almost just like everyone else. I mean, you were you still owed some obligations to your master every month, but your children um, were you know, the same status as anybody else's kids. And manumission could happen either because the master liked you or because you bought your own freedom with money that you accumulated in your free time. And so that's something that we certainly don't associate with the American South, the idea of, of having a free time and being able to, you know, get tips or, or work on your days off to save up your money and buy yourself free. That's not something that we had here. So in that sense, it's a real carrot for people who are around the master to, uh, you know, sort of to, to work real hard and then become and then become free. Uh, so in that sense, it's positive. But the point I'm starting to make is that we don't ever hear people envision a time without slavery. I mean, it's, I think we have exactly one reference in all of the ancient world of what the world would be like without slavery. And that's um, Gregory of Nyssa in, I think, the 330s CE. He was a bishop. He's basically saying it as a joke. Um, whenever we have a slave revolt, those slaves took slaves. Right? So even people who were uh, in the environment and saw how horrible things were, they couldn't envision a way out. Right? And so this is one of the things that is, to me, kind of strange that we don't have any abolition, no real visions of, of, of freedom there despite all these sort of torturous ways that people had to use ideology to try to make the system make sense. Uh, next, true or false. Was suicide acceptable and legal until it was eventually deemed a crime against the state due to its economic cost? Hmm. True-ish. Um, I mean, it's, it's a hard thing because we do have uh, some very early sources that talk against suicide. In, uh, I think it might be the, the Crito uh, final discussion with Socrates before his death, where the, this idea is advanced that it really should be up to the gods. And so if you are committing suicide, then you're depriving the gods of that decision, and that's a bad thing. Um, I think also it was a tenant of the Pythagoreans, which is sort of a mystical, mathematical cult um, religion thing. Part of the reason that suicide is bad is that there's a fixed number of souls in the world. And so by having your soul go at the wrong time sort of throws off the balance. So there were people who said that it was that it was bad. Uh, the way that I was raised, my, my father ran my CCD class back when I was you know, 12, 13. And one of the things that was said during that is suicide is a murder that you can't atone for. And so in that sense, a, a rip in the fabric of humanity. And so that's why it's a, it's a mortal sin. And you can see why there would be a reason to stop people from committing suicide. Because if your life really sucks and you're told, you know, if you're a good person, you get to go to you know, the land of milk and honey after you die. Well, there's a perfectly good reason why you wouldn't want everyone to sort of jumping off cliffs. Now, on the other hand, there was a fairly strong thread in Stoic philosophy that said that suicide is actually a perfectly fine thing. If you have no control over your life, you can at least control your death. And uh, in one of Seneca's letters, he talked about all these different ways that people committed suicide and, and why it's a noble thing. So, for example, this guy uh, who was condemned to death in the arena when he was in the bathroom, uh, they didn't have toilet paper. They had sponges on sticks that kept in vinegar water. And he was doing his business, and then he took the sponge with stick and shoved it down his throat and, and choked to death. And it's like, what a noble thing. Um, he was going to be, you know, sort of condemned to death in the arena, but he did the death of his own choosing. And there were plenty of people who, when they were confronted with the possibility of capital crimes, committed suicide instead of having an emperor have his chance to do it. Uh, one of my, my favorite versions of this is a guy, Petronius, who wrote the um, Satyricon, one of my favorite characters in the ancient world. His nickname was the uh, Arbiter Elegantii, the, uh, the judge of what's cool. 
And as the story goes, whenever Nero would have an idea for something to do, he'd go to Petronius and say, what do you think about this? Yeah, that's pretty cool. But you know, it'd be really cool. And then tell him something better. So he eventually fell out of favor with Nero and he decided to have this big party. Invited all his friends over and would open up his veins and then close them back up again and tell all the dirty secrets of Nero and have song and dance and food. And so for him, you know, sort of this slow way of committing suicide was the ideal way for him to go out. So we can see that on the one hand, there were some folks who thought that suicide is a, is a bad thing for various uh, philosophical and emotional reasons. But then there's another thread of people that said, you know, it's your life. You should choose it. And if you're going to die, if you're a man, it's better to do it by a blade, you know, falling on your sword, uh, opening up your veins, as opposed to doing it like a woman would, uh, jumping from a height uh, or hanging. Uh, hanging is definitely associated with women. Now, as for some of the uh, political and legal problems that come from this, so you know, let's say that you're going to be called into court on a capital crime for maybe saying nasty stuff about the emperor. Um, up before demission, one thing you could do is if you killed yourself, then your will came into effect and your stuff got to go to your family as opposed to the emperor. Demission wound up closing that loophole and saying that, uh, you know, suicide was an admission of guilt, and so the state could just take your stuff. Right? So, so there's one economic um, dimension of trying to keep people from committing suicide, and also you deprive the, the emperor and his, uh, his goons of the fun of, of uh, trying to figure out how you die. Um, as always, suicide is some convoluted and heavy shit. Let's lighten it up here with some hygiene questions. Starting, of course, with urine. True or false, urine was used to whiten teeth and wash laundry. Yes, true. One of my favorite badass women in the ancient world is this uh, woman, Eumachia. There's a statue of her in Pompeii. She was the head of the Fuller's Union, and Fuller's are basically dry cleaners, and they would also provide all the public urinals. So every day, every week, you'd send a slave around to collect all this urine, let it sort of uh, dry up a bit, make an ammoniac paste, and perfectly useful for bleaching your clothes, uh, cleaning your teeth, and also bleaching your hair. So, oh. you know, pro tip, if you don't have money to, <laughs> to get your hair did, you know, you can uh, always collect your urine. <laughs> I actually had a, a science teacher in seventh grade who used to say she washed her face with urine. Wow. Yeah, she was awesome. She also told us she was an alien. I loved her. She was a weirdo. I also now have an excuse when I accidentally pee my pants because I'm scared. I can just say I'm washing them. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, did women wear the sweat of gladiators to improve their beauty and complexion? Sure. Chasing beauty is something that has been a fairly common thing throughout time. One of my favorite things about Ovid, the guy who wrote that handbook on how to find a mate, uh, he actually wrote a short poem on how to make and apply makeup. So yeah, gladiator sweat doesn't seem at all out of the norm. Totally plausible. All right. Uh, Third hygiene fact. Women would drink turpentine to make their urine smell sweet like roses. Okay. Now, this is totally fucked up. I don't (laughs) – I I wrote a – I wound up writing an email to Snopes yesterday about this because am I trying to find this out? The only source that I can find for this in this Snopes article about people drinking turpentine to make their urine smell sweet, they had a link to, you know, Perseus on Tufts at EDU and the section of Pliny's Natural History. And uh, the person was actually quoting a footnote, not the actual text of Pliny. So 
the the footnote says juniper berries are like turpentine, and as we know, for hundreds of years, people have been drinking turpentine to make their urine smell like violet, not roses. But that's not at all what Pliny's talking about. He, he says, eat juniper berries, right? So I think that the advice would be, if you want sweet-smelling urine, drink gin, not turpentine. So every reference that I've been able to find to this uh, drinking turpentine to make your urine, that's, that's not a Roman thing. And I and it, it really looks like it's from this guy in 1855 who did a translation and commentary that's now open source and on the web. And I think that's where people are getting that from. But uh, I've, I've never found that. Yeah, don't drink turpentine. Drink gin. So Roman gladiators rarely fought to the death or against animals. Is that true? Oh, absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it, you don't take your Lexus to the demolition derby, right? Um, gladiators are extremely expensive, right? You, you have to buy somebody train them, house them, feed them, and you want to get a return on your investment. And so, I mean, even if the, the logic of you don't want to squander your resources like that doesn't fit, I mean, we, we have graffiti with people's win-loss records. And if they died every time they fought, it'd be hard to have a, a loss record of higher than one, right? Um, <laughs> we also <laughs> it also have uh, uh, effectively playbills um, from uh, various um, uh, gladiatorial shows where they would advertise, you know, a guaranteed minimum number of deaths. Right? So it would be something that is, um, you know, uncommon enough and exciting enough that you would advertise that people are actually going to die during your gladiatorial show, or at least a minimum uh, amount of people are. So to the death, uh, not a common thing. And these hunts were really not that popular. They were never the main event. If you have a day of gladiatorial shows and in the afternoon you'd have all the superstars, you know, the people who, you know, have effectively your, your trading cards for, you have mosaics to this day with like sort of famous people and their names as well as graffiti. So like these were, these were superstars. You have those in the afternoon, but in the morning you would have the people who were condemned to, uh, condemned to death, you know, so the untrained folks. Uh, or the or the beast fights, and beast fighting was the lowliest form of gladiator. In some ways, it's exciting because this is the way that Romans got to see new exotic animals. Like you'd bring hippos in and then fight hippos. So, oh, oh you know, new animal, and then you kill it. Those poor hippos. Last question: Was the Colosseum filled with water in order to stage a whole naval battle? True, um, and also not the first time that that happened. So Julius Caesar in 46 had a big trench dug and did Naumachia, you know, these naval battles uh, next to the Tiber. Augustus in two did the same thing. I mean, it was interesting and extreme. I think part of the reason why people pick up on the Colosseum as a, a place for that is because up until the Colosseum or the Flavian Amphitheater, there had not been a purpose-built arena in Rome. The way that these guys thought about leisure time versus business time, uh, these sorts of entertainments would be purpose-built for a specific occasion. Like you would take the forum and put down sand uh, and then stage your, your battles in there, you know, put up bleachers or the same thing if you're going to uh, put on a play, you would put up uh, bleachers and canopies and have them done. So it wasn't really until the, the Colosseum was built that they had a permanent arena for this type of thing. Actually, one thing, uh, the word arena comes from the word for sand, harena, right? So it's called a, an arena because you have sand down to mop up the blood and extra, extra body parts. If you've been there, you know how they had all these chambers down below for holding uh, animals and, and, and people and all kinds of machinery, which, yeah, I, 
it is surprising that they would be able to to do that. But as the story goes, they diverted the part of the Tiber and it sort of filled up enough so that they could engage in these battles. So, yeah. I totally would have bought a ticket to that. All right. So those were all my questions, but he had some really cool side facts. And this one I found especially interesting. Now, this is a weird detail um, uh, that uh, you that may indeed be something you would say, are you fucking shitting me about? Um, so, like, women don't get to participate in, in law court, right? They don't get to go to the Senate. They don't get to vote. There's a lot of things that, that don't happen. Um, but it's not until Augustus, our first emperor, um, passes adultery legislation uh, in the first century BCE. Um, uh, somewhere between, I think it's somewhere between 22 and maybe 14, um, where women are actually prosecutable for adultery. And this is, a, this is sort of a fascinating thin edge of the wedge that will get women to become legal agents. Uh, so when you switch from uh, women, it's not really their fault because, you know, they're just women. You know, if, if a, a dog bites you, you don't sue the dog, you sue the master. Um, so where women move from this one conceptual space as not having any agency over their lives to saying, well, no, actually, they can choose to be adulterous or not um, and therefore can be prosecutable um, as adulterers. Well, this is the, the beginning of the legal agency of women. And then within 100 years, women are starting to own property, make decisions on their own in ways they, they weren't able to before. Well, April, that's it. There's our true or false session with Dell. What do you think about what the ancient Romans did? Well, I think there was a lot more truths than I expected, or partial truths. Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to start drinking some more gin. And <laughs> I, th- I think the thing that I found the most interesting was the bit at the end where he's talking about how when women were punished for adultery, that that actually led to a bit of some more equality for them. Yeah, I thought that was really crazy. Like the whole theory of you're now responsible for adultery. You're no longer the equivalent of a dog, let's be honest. You're now responsible for adultery, which means you have free will, which means that you're your own free agent, which means you should then get rights. I mean, it's a long time coming. Yeah, but it's amazing that, you know, committing a so-called crime is what led to a bit more equity. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack in this episode, obviously. I wanted to bring up, just because I think it's hilarious, is, and I'm sure it wasn't hilarious while it happened to you, but Snake Dog Monkey Cock, the bag full of those, they also prodded the person that committed the patricide or matricide. They struck the perpetrator with hot prods and then forced them to wear wooden shoes, which you know, I've been to a lot of metal shows without earplugs. So I kept thinking he was saying women's shoes. <laughs> but I, if I'm honest, I don't think that's any weirder than what was going on. <laughs> None of it made sense. Even though he he explained it, I still think, uh, okay, wooden shoes, women's shoes, tomato, tomato. Yeah, whatever. Wooden shoes are probably just as uncomfortable as women's shoes. So what do you think about the urine? Come on, does it really work? Well, there's ammonia in it, but do you really want to use it? I remember there was a Friends episode where someone got bit by a jellyfish or something. And so one of them had to pee on the other one's leg to, you know. Yeah, it turns out that's false. (laughs) 
Um, I actually had heard about the teeth whitening. I didn't know it was ancient Rome on really great podcast called There's No Such Thing as a Fish. I don't know if you guys listen to it. You listen to it, right? It's fantastic. It's the QI elves. These people are awesome at finding weird facts out. So quick shout out to There's No Such Thing as a Fish. But they had talked briefly about the urine. And then in another episode, they talked about how it doesn't actually help jellyfish stings. The teeth whitening, I didn't realize it was also for clothes. Like your laundromat would just collect urine. Yuck. Yeah. (laughs) It's funny. (laughs) Couldn't they wash it in gin instead? Oh, make it sweet smelling like juniper. Mm -hmm. Gin does smell like camping to me. I love it. I like gin too. Yeah. That's interesting that the translation got so screwed up that probably the original text was gin. Yeah. And got misunderstood for turpentine you know what i've always wanted to know more about about ancient rome is bathhouses do you think that Dell could come back and talk to us about bathhouses i want to know how they started what they actually were what went on there was it really true you know um, <laughs> i think it's very likely like i said at the beginning of the show what's new in ancient rome is an option that Dell and i just kind of kicked around because he's a great guest i'd love to have him back and just bring us up to date on things that happened thousands of years ago yeah i like that you know researchers and scientists are always finding out new things about the past so yeah like we learned as the amazons finding out that they were actually real that there were women warriors that were feared absolutely and uh, i think in an upcoming episode we're also going to talk about atlantis scientists have made some discoveries there archaeologists have found a couple different spots that they think might point to where atlantis was near greece so Uh, then we'd have to find out what's myth and what's actually factual and what existed versus mm -hmm. is it really a super advanced culture or is that the myth part was it just a city that went missing that would be really cool to find out right until this episode i didn't know that vestal virgins were a real thing apparently it was and not a bad gig if you wanted to be kind of an autonomous woman so long as you didn't break the vow of chastity which was determined by right whatever they decided i mean maybe they did some weird different trials one was about a woman who had a leaky sieve like pot that she was supposed to carry water from the tiber and if it leaked, even though it was civ-like, if it leaked, then she had clearly had not been chased. So some people say she lined the inside of it with wax so that it would hold water. And Smart on her. Yeah, it was very Monty Python. If you float, you're a witch. If you drowned, you're not. This <laughs> is like kind of you're damned if you do, you're damned if you that don't. That is ridiculous. Yeah. Here, I'm going to give you a pot with a hole in it. And if the water leaks out the hole, well, then you're certainly not chased. Yeah, kind of like the Simpsons episode where I'm going to swing my arms like this and walk towards you. And if you get hit, it's not my fault. (laughs) You saw me coming. (laughs) All right. So that's a lot. There's a lot there. And I think that there's even more to find out about ancient Romans. And just remember, when in ancient Rome, maybe think twice about doing what they do. Uh, Yeah, I will from now on. So one of the things we talked about at the beginning of this podcast are some of the projects that we're working on. And we're looking to create a podcast network. So if you or someone you know has a podcast that you think is fun, interesting, different, a little bit on the weird, maybe leans into the weird a lot, uh, please feel free. Or just super interesting. Yeah, we like super interesting. Please feel free to submit them. We don't have it up and running right now, but we are looking to collect a group of fun podcasts that might work together and create a network. Just go to rufsmpodcast.com. 
click the contact and just send us a link to your podcast, whether it's on your website or iTunes or Stitcher. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. (laughs) All right. Thank you guys for joining in this week. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rachel. This is a fun episode. You're welcome. I had a great time. Thank you, Dell, for being awesome. Happy 4th of July. I'm April. And I'm Rachel. Bye. Bye.